Rabbi Laura Jonathan Sachs believed profoundly in the power of the written word and authored many books and articles that addressed major trends and issues of the day through the lens of Jewish values and Jewish texts. In an effort to honor his creative contributions and scholarship, Yeshiva University has created the Sachs Book Prize, generously funded by the Rohr family, to broaden the impact of Jewish scholarship in the arena of contemporary Jewish thought. The prize aims to recognize recent publications of ideas deeply sourced in Jewish texts with wide appeal within and beyond the Jewish community. I'm Dr. Shira Weiss, Assistant Director of Yeshiva University's Sachs-Herrenstein Center for Values and Leadership, and I was privileged to be joined by Lady Elaine Sachs, Professor Robbie George of Princeton University, Adam Kirsch of the Wall Street Journal, and Professor Daniel Reinhold, Dean of the Bernard Revel Graduate School of YU, to judge over 45 submissions of manuscripts published this year for the inaugural Sachs Book Prize. We're honored to speak with Jason Weiner, author of Karen Covenant, a Jewish bioethic of responsibility, Sachs Book Prize finalist, recently published by Georgetown University Press. Jason explores how Jewish texts address complex contemporary ethical issues ranging from abortion to vaccines. Through this discussion, we'll learn how his professional experience as a bioethicist chaplain contributed to his research and how he responds to challenging ethical conflicts through the lens of Jewish thought and law. Jason Weiner serves as senior rabbi and director of the Spiritual Care Department at Cedar sinai in LA, where he's responsible for the chaplaincy team and all aspects of spiritual care throughout the health system and serves as a member of the Executive Committee of the Cedar sinai Bioethics Committee. He's also the rabbi of Knesset Israel Synagogue of Beverlywood and has earned two rabbinic ordinations, as well as a doctorate in clinical bioethics from Loyola University in Chicago, in addition to a master's degree in Jewish history from YU. Jason is a board-certified chaplain through Neshama, Association of Jewish Chaplains, and is the author of Jewish Guide to Practical Medical Decision-Making and Guide to Observance of Jewish Law in a Hospital. Welcome, Jason. Dr. Erica Brown, Vice Provost and Director of the Sex Herrenstein Center at YU, joins me in congratulating you on your work being recognized as a finalist. Thank you very much. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the namesake of this prize, writes a lot about moral responsibility, and you reference his books starting on page one of your introduction, numerous times throughout your chapters, and even conclude by quoting him. How has Rabbi Sachs' scholarship impacted you? Yeah, it's a great question. Rabbi Sachs' scholarship his whole life impacted me quite a bit. First of all, I've you know read everything Rabbi Sachs has written. I just love it. And I've been so influenced by it my whole life. And it's hard to even pinpoint because it's so much. But first of all, as I read his books, you know, he doesn't write necessarily specifically about medical ethics a lot, but what he does write about can be applied very effectively. And there's one place I found in his writings where he actually does reference medical ethics. And he was lamenting the fact there in this article in tradition that, you know, the, the Judaism is often today only focused on impacting our private lives, not the public domain. And he gives us an example, medical ethics. He says the one reason why the primary field of ethics in the Jewish community that has flourished is medical ethics, but that's because it focuses primarily on private discussions between doctors and patients. But Rabbi Sachs is challenging us in that article to see how can Judaism impact the public domain? How can we have things to say about broader societal issues, which I took as a little bit of a challenge. Like he was lamenting this and I thought, you know, it's something that I want to take upon myself because there are so many profound issues that are being faced that haven't been addressed by Jewish authors, but yet which Jewish wisdom has quite a bit to say about. 
And in particular, Rabbi Sachs writes a lot about the importance of human rights, which of course, you know, I learned from him that that's something to be respected and um, is, is an important field of thought. But he writes how rights always have correlative duties, that the, there's whenever there's a right, there is a corresponding duty that goes with it, a responsibility. And the question he, he which he helped, helped me sent, helped sensitize me to was, you know, when there's a right that has a corresponding duty, what comes first? What's primary, uh, our rights or our duties? So like if someone needs to be rescued, someone's suffering, they need to be rescued. Is it that they have a right that someone should rescue them? Or is there a duty on others to rescue that person? And he argues that in Judaism, our duties come first and a society is much better if it's a society based on those obligations that you want to live in a place that's not only focused on rights. Of course, we believe in rights, but that we're focused on teaching people what our obligations are to help those who are in need. And that was very influential to me, this whole idea of an ethics of responsibility and creating a society that honors people's dignity and 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 our obligations. And, and finally, as I was thinking about that, you know, and this was really influencing the way I was trying to come up with ideas of how Judaism can impact the public domain and focus on those duties that each of us have. Uh, as I was writing, you know, I, a number of times I had questions like I wasn't sure about things. And I thought, you know, Rabbi Sachs would be the perfect person for me to meet with to discuss some of these issues. So I started creating um, just like a notebook for myself of like questions to be discussed with Rabbi Sachs. And I had this whole list of things that I was looking forward to getting his wisdom on. And I was even already strategizing, how am I going to get to him? <laughs> Who do I know that can connect me to him? And as I was finishing up writing the first draft of the book and kind of had my list of questions. It was right then when unfortunately I got an email which said um, the family of Rabbi Sachs is asking for people to pray for him because he's not well. And of course, I wasn't praying selfishly. Like I want him to be well to answer my questions. Of course, I was shocked sure. because, you know, I just loved him as a figure and a thinker for so many years. Um, and, and unfortunately, he didn't recover from that illness, which the truth is, also had a huge impact on me, both just the devastation and the inspiration to read more of his writing and to really feel a sense of obligation to try to utilize his thought and put it into action. But um, I remember reading shortly after his death, one of his last books, the 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 book on the on the Parsha on essays on spirituality. And I remember being so moved by the last paragraph of that last book in which he talks about how sad it was that Moshe Rabbeinu, that Moses didn't make it to the promised land as much as he wanted to. And and Rabbi Sachs writes there that, you know, um it's it's to teach us that even this great leader, his his mission was not completed and that everyone's capable of making mistakes. And he writes there, and I remember just reading this and shaking. He writes that um, there were three life-changing ideas from the fact that the Torah ends with Moses um, not making it into Israel. One was that we're, we're mortal, that we have to make every day count because we only have a limited number of days, that we're fallible, everyone makes mistakes, and we have to therefore learn how to grow from each mistake. And that we're not going to complete the journey. And therefore, we have to inspire others to continue what we began. And it was a reminder to me as I read it, and I was like in mourning that I didn't get to learn from him more. It was an inspiration to me like, okay, I have these questions, and I'm not going to get the answer from Rabbi Sachs, unfortunately. But first of all, I can probe his books. There's so much wisdom still to be um, mined there. And also, I'm going to have to see what I can figure out on my own. And with other great mentors, it's like, this is this is how life works, unfortunately. And I was very inspired and touched by that message from Rabbi Sachs. When you mention Rabbi Sachs's influence upon your writing and kind of taking it from 
your focus on medical ethics and bringing these issues more towards how they impact the public domain, who do you think can benefit from your book? Your, your work cites Jewish sources and values, and you write in the preface that this book is intended for healthcare practitioners, bioethicists, public health officials of all religions, chaplains, clergy. But I think you discuss such relevant contemporary issues and dilemmas that there's a broader interest extending beyond the healthcare community. Yeah, thank you. I, I tried really hard to write in a way that would be accessible for everyone, Jewish, not Jewish, healthcare professional, not. Um, I really, you know, part of that is done by trying to write in a way that's understandable by everyone in the text. And then the footnotes might have a little bit more complicated detail, but not everyone needs to read the footnotes. Um, I wanted to write in a way that, you know, secular or non-Jewish bioethicists and physicians and public policy experts like that, I would could show hopefully that Judaism does have great wisdom that should contribute to the public conversation. And so I want people to be able to read it who have no connection necessarily to Judaism or Torah. But I also want to show, you know, rabbis uh, how they can access um, new fields and new areas within medical ethics that are relevant on a day-to-day -day basis in hospitals and for patients and that Jewish healthcare professionals in particular and chaplains and anyone, you know, who has to go to a doctor or ends up might end up in a hospital might find to be especially meaningful, especially if someone's Jewish and they find, wow, the, the Torah has great wisdom that can guide us in all kinds of complex areas. What motivated your interest in pursuing bioethics? Well, what motivated me was, um, I mean, I sort of f fell into it um, when I became a chaplain in a hospital, um, which was not my intended career path, but, you know, that so much of life often is about finding ourselves in places where we didn't expect to be and then making the best of it. And I found myself as a chaplain in a really incredible hospital that is doing, on the one hand, first of all, it's a Jewish hospital, it's a community hospital, um, it's the hospital for so many in our local Jewish community and from around the world, but also it's a world-class research institution and one of the, you know, the number two ranked hospital in the whole country. I mean, it's a hospital where all kinds of amazing things are happening. So I've been exposed to fascinating research and cutting edge technology and, um, you know, really interesting um, bioethical dilemmas from the entire spectrum of life. And first of all, my, my love of Torah motivated me to say like, the Torah must have great things to say about this. Mm. Also, my, my firm belief that the Torah needs to be relevant. It needs to guide our lives. And so I realized like we have to make decisions a lot, and a lot of complicated decisions in hospitals and the Torah must have guidance for, it, and, and it does. And that there's such great people, you know, contributing to the field and, um, and that there's therefore practical guidance that can be provided on a day-to-day -day basis, even on these very complex and unique issues that come up. Describe how your professional experience at Cedars-Sinai and complex cases that you have encountered have inspired or influenced your writing? Well, the truth is that what I experienced in the hospital is the basis for my writing because what happens is, you know, we have all kinds of difficult cases. Every day is a different day. People always ask me like, what's an average, what's a typical day like? And it's like, there, there's no typical day. That's what I love about my work in the hospital. But so what I started doing when I first began in the hospital about uh, 15 years ago was I started taking notes. And whenever things would come up, first of all, I would I would kind of summarize for myself what the issue is, what our strategy was. I would reach out to different great rabbis and thinkers and sort of summarize what their answers to me were. And um, I, before I knew it, I started to have like all these guidance. And, and every time a new issue would arise, I would, I would start to realize, oh, wow, wait a second, I have some precedent from this case that we had last year or that case. And I would start adding to my notes. 
And little by little, I realized like, this is really relevant and meaningful material. And for me, uh, it helps me to make the ideas concrete and articulate them better when I have to write them out and make them organize and put them in a way that other people can understand, you know, my notes. And so that sort of forced me to realize that I could publish this and write about this and maybe it could help other people as well, which I, I hope it can. Um, and also it, it helps sure. me to keep my thinking, you know, organized and, and practical. Can you give an example of a challenging bioethical case and how you've approached it, especially when Jewish values conflict with individual rights? The, the brain death conflict can often be extremely excruciating because you have a patient for whom the family sees them as being alive and still has maybe some hope of recovery, whereas the healthcare professionals recognize how severe that is. And they oftentimes might be looking down on the family for uh, not recognizing that. And and so it, it can be a big challenge. I mean, I'm just just thinking as, as we're talking um, about a time, you know, just to highlight the, the intensity of it, where we once had a patient who was declared dead by neurological criteria, and the coroner was actually called, and they were on their way. And the family found out they were on their way and started, you know, protesting. And little by little, their community members began showing up to try to protect the body from being intercepted by the coroner. And as the, you know, ICU was filling up with people and tensions were rising. And as a chaplain myself, I realized, you know, my job here is to mitigate this conflict. I, how can I possibly calm these tensions? And little by little, I had some help from others as well. We kind of got people into separate rooms and calm the situation down. And afterwards, you know, after hours of really intense and emotional argumentation and debate and conversation. And finally, thankfully, a resolution where the coroner did not take the body and allowed everything to be reasonably accommodated. I I remember especially that night, you know, going and sitting down and writing and thinking to myself, how did we get through this? And how can we use what we learned in this intense event to try to prevent this type of conflict from happening again, and hopefully in ways that can be helpful in other hospitals as well. And so, for example, I wrote about, you know, both from the perspective of my experience, but also the data and the research out there about the importance of first developing um, a relationship through listening first and really creating some collaboration and trust and including religious leadership. So often, unfortunately, religious leadership um, clergy are kind of kept out of hospitals. They don't understand the the terminology and the language, but the importance of including them in order to have um, a productive working relationship, supporting hospital staff, recognizing that as much as we're supporting the patient, there might be staff that feels a sense of moral injury to take care of patients who they see as being dead, or they feel like they're not acting in the patient's best interest. So of course, we do have to isolate those staff members who are struggling in, in order to help them and provide support to them, allow them to step away from the case um, if necessary. Also, the importance of practicing cultural humility. So often we talk about cultural competence and we expect healthcare providers to know all the nuances of every single religious and cultural and ethnic group they might encounter. And in big cities and many places throughout the world, but like here, here in Los Angeles, I mean, you're going to encounter every single type of person from every walk of life you can imagine. And it's not possible to have the competence, so to speak, to know everything about every type of person, not to mention that there's nuances within 
groups. So just because you know about such and such group does not mean you know about that patient in front of you. But when we talk about cultural humility and having the curiosity to learn, the humility to recognize, I don't know everything about you, but I want you to teach me who you are and what matters for you. And then also the importance of coming to compromises, that there are ways, and I put some strategies there when it comes to brain death in particular, but there's oftentimes compromise strategies that can sort of help to mitigate the conflict. So that's just an example of one of the areas of conflict we experience that I try to um, give specific guidance to. You write about very current issues, especially in light of the pandemic and the Supreme Court ruling on abortion. You wrote many lessons have been learned during the COVID-19 pandemic when many healthcare systems faced severe shortages, significantly affecting the clinical decision-making for physicians, patients, and families. Shortages of ICU beds and ventilators have created very real concerns about how to properly ration them, which leads to wrenching life and death decisions. Triage priority decisions also have to be made about allocating limited amounts of medications, tests, and vaccines. Using really concrete examples, you address the ethics of medical experimentation for vaccine research, universal health care, brain death, and conscientious objection. Why did you choose these specific topics as opposed to others to include in this work? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the topics that I chose were topics that I find that we experience frequently in the hospital about which there is not a lot written from a Jewish perspective, some of them not from any perspective, and about which I felt like I had something to say, something to add to the conversation, maybe some specific concrete guidance. And so um, as I was doing my own research, looking for approaches and realized that there was a dearth of literature on them, I realized that there was a need for some thought on these topics. Can you describe one of these topics for those who haven't yet read your book and how you analyzed it, both from an ethical and a Jewish perspective? Sure, yeah. So. Um, for example, one thing that we encounter here in Los Angeles a lot, though I know it's uh, an issue around the world, is that we have a lot of patients experiencing homelessness, a lot of people on the streets here who end up, of course, in hospitals frequently. Now, when they end up in the hospital, um, oftentimes people are very, very sick and they don't have family to speak on their behalf, but yet they often themselves, when they're very sick, can't speak for themselves. So this is what we call unrepresented patients. Sometimes we don't even know their name and then they're called unidentified patients. And we have a small committee, which I'm on, where we make decisions on behalf of the patients. Really the, the role that I have is, is we obviously don't make the decisions, but we support the healthcare providers in coming to the proper decision. And this is very challenging because we don't know who the patients are and we're trying to defend them and advocate for them and make decisions in their best interest without knowing them. And so um, I tried to think about like, what would Jewish law and Jewish values say about this? Because there was nothing written about this topic, even though we face it in the hospital on a regular basis. But I understand that most people would not be familiar with this being such a big issue that it is in hospitals. And um, so based on evaluating the topics related to and what does it mean to care for others and the divine image, um, I was able to sort of develop an approach that it might sound counterintuitive, but in the in the Gemara, the Talmud, when it talks about capital punishment, which obviously wasn't practiced a lot, um, but there is a whole procedure for what happens if when, for someone to be um, actually executed by a Jewish court. And there's a few fascinating details. Like, for example, if every judge on the court is unanimous, it's thrown out. 
there has to be some dis- difference of opinion. There has to be people advocating for both sides. Also, the witnesses, when they come to testify in these cases, there was like a whole um, statement that they had to be read about, you know, Adam being created alone to teach you that anyone who destroys one soul is as if they destroyed the entire world, that um, anyone who sustains one soul created an entire world. And this was done that, you know, the Talmud says to maintain peace amongst people that no one can say, you know, my progenitor is greater than yours and the greatness of God that when a king mints coins, they're all the same, but yet God minted us in the image of, you know, God and, and with the seal of Adam. And yet each human being is different. And therefore we can say, that the world is created for me. And so we can see from just that statement that every human life is of immeasurable value, that every human is of equal value, and that everyone is unique. And so in trying to apply those values, I realized that, first of all, in many hospitals, the way that doctors make decisions for unrepresented patients is to just for one person to make a unilateral decision, whatever they think is right. But I realized there needs to be an interdisciplinary committee, a diverse committee that can push back and forth. Hopefully that represents that patient's cultural or religious background, at least someone on there, and that there can be some give and take and discussion, and that there should be a real attempt to strive to learn about patients. Um, Like I remember one time, uh, there was a a man who was experiencing homelessness on the streets of LA, and he was found in front of a synagogue with a long beard. And so as we're trying, we don't know anything else about him. But we thought, you know, if we could get permission to show his picture to some of the rabbis, on the street where he was found, maybe they'll know who he was. And indeed, um, there was a synagogue right where he was, and that rabbi knew who he was. And that rabbi was able to tell us about him. So that helped us to make decisions for this person, uh, instead of just kind of deciding on the spot. And then this also kind of inspired me that just like there is that ritual that had to be said to the the people, the witnesses before a capital case, you know, there are priming rituals in hospitals as well, where you prime someone, you tell them something before they do an act and research has shown that can have an impact on their behavior. And so I came up with like a script that when we have these committee meetings, which we have a few times a week, sometimes a few times a day, um, that we just read a short statement, you know, that we say something like, you know, before engaging in making decisions on behalf of this patient, or if we know their name, we insert the name, that we hereby recognize their inherent value and uniqueness, and we commit ourselves to striving to understand who they are, to fulfill our duties toward them and care for them equitably and with dignity to the best of our ability, and then we start talking about them. Something just to give a sense of dignity. But in that chapter, I sort of tried to develop um, protocols that a hospital could follow um, based on Jewish values and um, and and guidance, where there's really nothing been written from a Jewish perspective in the past. In your contributions to the Ethics Committee, are you contributing Jewish values that really focus on human values as opposed to Jewish law? Well, it's a good question. It is more oftentimes more Jewish values than law per se. And I do have to try to articulate myself in a way that can be convincing to all kinds of people. So just because I say, well, you know, the code of Jewish law says such and such, therefore we should do this. Many people on the ethics committee are not going to be swayed by that. Um, sometimes I can use the fact that, you know, we're a Jewish hospital or if it's a Jewish patient, but really it has to be more convincing than that. So it informs my values, but then I have to find a way to state it that can make sense to broader communities of people. 
What did you find challenging in your writing, and perhaps what do you find most challenging in your work? The biggest challenge, I think, is that you know, oftentimes there's not an obvious right or wrong, yes or no. It's often gray, very gray, and there's multiple possible approaches. And usually, we're choosing the least bad approach. Mm-hmm. And um, there's so much that can be done to prolong lives or to impact our lives. And the question is often, you know, just because we can, does that mean that we should? And these are questions that we're constantly rehashing. What questions were raised for you during your research? There is a lot of questions. I mean, every, every time I encountered a question, my 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 first question to myself was like, you know, what can we add to this? What does Judaism have to say about it? So whether it was, you know, universal health care, and I started to feel like I don't want to get into like political landmines. I'm not talking about politics here. So how can I write about values without getting into politics or trying to examine the history of Jewish hospitals? And what does it mean to be a Jewish hospital? And what can that contribute to, you know, the the broader healthcare system in the United States, the this the 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 history of Jewish hospitals and trying to look at history oftentimes you know, um, in, in a way that I'm not biasing myself, but trying to really uncover the the true history. Like when I looked at, um, you know, those people who experimented on the first vaccines and risked, risked themselves, you know, 100, 200 years ago, um, and trying to determine, like, how does this inform us today? I'm, I'm trying to really not bias myself, but just simply present values and precedent um, in a way that can be impactful. What lessons do you want your readers to come away with? How do you hope your work contributes to Jewish thought at this moment when there are tremendous advances in technology and in healthcare? What do you hope your work contributes? I hope my work contributes, first of all, this concept of a Torah Chaim, that the Torah is alive and relevant and it, it's meaningful, that Judaism has something to say to the world. There's wisdom that we have to provide that as new issues arise, we should be looking to the Torah and that it has concrete guidance. It's not just that there's some sort of um, vague ideas that the Torah can contribute to, but there's specific guidance that everything that comes up in the modern world, we can look to our tradition and find guidance for those issues. And that I hope it's a Kiddush Hashem that people, you know, are, are appreciate the beauty of our tradition and that they can see that it can be applied to lots of fields. So people are applying to Torah to many, many fields, and I'm trying to apply it deeper and broader within the medical field than I think it has before. And hopefully to show that it can be effectively applied to these fields and many other fields. Your subtitle, A Jewish Bioethic of Responsibility, I can't even imagine the responsibility that you feel sitting in on these committees and, and um, weighing in on these extremely complex and challenging decisions. I thank you so much for your time today and also for your contributions in this work. I think it will have tremendous impact, not only on the healthcare community, but also on the public domain who thinks about all of these very relevant Uh, and sometimes controversial issues. Thank you. Oh, that's very kind of you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We're grateful to the Rohr family who appreciates the influence of books in shaping the Jewish future and continues to support literary contributions in contemporary Jewish thought. We at Yeshiva University's Sachs-Herrenstein Center look forward to next year's Rabbi Sachs Book Prize and hope this award will catalyze more inspired and inspiring Jewish writing and scholarship.